Chapter sixty six, part four of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume six, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter sixty six. The Union of the Greek and Latin Churches, part four. The most learned Italians of the fifteenth century have confessed and applauded the restoration of Greek literature, after a long oblivion of many hundred years. Yet in that country, and beyond the Alps, some names are quoted, some profound scholars, who in the darker ages were honorably distinguished by their knowledge of the Greek tongue, and national vanity has been loud in the praise of such rare examples of erudition. Without scrutinizing the merit of individuals, truth must observe, that their science is without a cause, and without an effect, that it was easy for them to satisfy themselves and their more ignorant contemporaries, and that the idiom which they had so marvellously acquired was transcribed in a few manuscripts, and was not taught in any university of the West. In a corner of Italy it faintly existed as the popular, or at least as the ecclesiastical dialect. The first impression of the Doric and Ionic colonies has never been completely erased, the Calabrian churches were long attached to the throne of Constantinople, and the monks of St. Basil pursued their studies in Mount Athos and the schools of the East. Calabria was the native country of Barlam, who has already appeared as a sectary and an ambassador, and Barlam was the first who revived, beyond the Alps, the memory, or at least the writings, of Homer. He is described, by Petrarch and Boccace, as a man of diminutive stature, though truly great in the measure of learning and genius, of a piercing discernment, though of a slow and painful elocution. For many ages, as they affirm, Greece had not produced his equal in the knowledge of history, grammar, and philosophy, and his merit was celebrated in the attestations of the princes and doctors of Constantinople. One of these attestations is still extant, and the emperor Cantacuzene, the protector of his adversaries, is forced to allow, that Euclid, Aristotle, and Plato were familiar to that profound and subtle logician. In the court of Avignon he formed an intimate connection with Petrarch, the first of the Latin scholars, and the desire of mutual instruction was the principle of their literary commerce. The Tuscan applied himself with eager curiosity and assiduous diligence to the study of the Greek language, and in a laborious struggle, with the dryness and difficulty of the first rudiments, he began to reach the sense, and to feel the spirit, of poets and philosophers, whose minds were congenial to his own. But he was soon deprived of the society and lessons of this useful assistant. Barlaam relinquished his fruitless embassy, and on his return to Greece, he rashly provoked the swarms of fanatic monks, by attempting to substitute the light of reason to that of their navel. After a separation of three years, the two friends again met at the court of Naples, but the generous pupil renounced the fairest occasion of improvement, and by his recommendation Barlaam was finally settled in a small bishopric of his native Calabria. The manifold avocations of Petrarch, love and friendship, his various correspondence and frequent journeys, the Roman laurel, and his elaborate compositions in prose and verse, in Latin and Italian, diverted him from a foreign idiom, and as he advanced in life, the attainment of the Greek language was the object of his wishes rather than of his hopes. When he was about fifty years of age, a Byzantine ambassador, his friend, and a master of both tongues, presented him with a copy of Homer, 
and the answer of Petrarch is at once expressive of his eloquence, gratitude, and regret. After celebrating the generosity of the donor, the value of a gift more precious in his estimation than gold or rubies, he thus proceeds, Your present of the genuine and original text of the divine poet, the fountain of all inventions, is worthy of yourself and of me. You have fulfilled your promise, and satisfied my desires. Yet your liberality is still imperfect. With Homer you should have given me yourself, a guide, who could lead me into the fields of light, and disclose to my wandering eyes the spacious miracles of the Iliad and the Odyssey. But, alas, Homer is dumb, or I am deaf, nor is it in my power to enjoy the beauty which I possess. I have seated him by the side of Plato, the prince of poets, near the prince of philosophers, and I glory in the sight of my illustrious guests. Of their immortal writings, whatever had been translated into the Latin idiom, I had already acquired. But if there be no profit, there is some pleasure in beholding these venerable Greeks in their proper and national habit. I am delighted with the aspect of Homer, and as often as I embrace the silent volume, I exclaim with a sigh, Illustrious bard! With what pleasure should I listen to thy song, if my sense of hearing were not obstructed and lost by the dearth of one friend, and in the much-lamented absence of another? Nor do I yet despair, and the example of Cato suggests some comfort and hope, since it was in the last period of age that he attained the knowledge of the Greek letters. The prize which eluded the efforts of Petrarch was obtained by the fortune and industry of his friend Boccace, the father of the Tuscan prose. That popular writer, who derives his reputation from the Decameron, a hundred novels of pleasantry and love, may aspire to the more serious praise of restoring in Italy the study of the Greek language. In the year 1360, a disciple of Barlaam, whose name was Leo, or Leontius Pilatus, was detained on his way to Avignon by the advice and hospitality of Boccace, who lodged the stranger in his house, prevailed on the Republic of Florence to allow him an annual stipend, and devoted his leisure to the first Greek professor, who taught that language in the western countries of Europe. The appearance of Leo might disgust the most eager disciple. He was clothed in the mantle of a philosopher or a mendicant. His countenance was hideous, his face was overshadowed with black hair, his beard long and uncombed, his deportment rustic, his temper gloomy and inconstant, nor could he grace his discourse with the ornaments, or even the perspicuity of Latin elocution. But his mind was stored with a treasure of Greek learning, history and fable, philosophy and grammar, were alike at his command, and he read the poems of Homer in the schools of Florence. It was from his explanation that Boccace composed and transcribed a literal prose version of the Iliad and Odyssey, which satisfied the thirst of his friend Petrarch, and which, perhaps, in the succeeding century, was clandestinely used by Laurentius Valla, the Latin interpreter. It was from his narratives that the same Boccace collected the materials for his treatise on the genealogy of the heathen gods, a work, in that age, of stupendous erudition, and which he ostentatiously sprinkled with Greek characters and passages, to excite the wonder and applause of his more ignorant readers. The first steps of learning are slow and laborious. No more than ten votaries of Homer could be enumerated in all Italy, and neither Rome, nor Venice, nor Naples could add a single name to this studious catalogue. But their numbers would have multiplied, their progress would have been accelerated, if the inconstant Leo, at the end of three years, had not relinquished an honourable and beneficial station. In his passage, Petrarch entertained him at Padua a short time. 
He enjoyed the scholar, but was justly offended with the gloomy and unsocial temper of the man. Discontented with the world and with himself, Leo depreciated his present enjoyments, while absent persons and objects were dear to his imagination. In Italy he was a Thessalian, in Greece a native of Calabria. In the company of the Latins he disdained their language, religion, and manners. No sooner was he landed at Constantinople than he again sighed for the wealth of Venice and the elegance of Florence. His Italian friends were deaf to his importunity, he depended on their curiosity and indulgence, and embarked on a second voyage, but on his entrance into the Adriatic the ship was assailed by a tempest, and the unfortunate teacher, who, like Ulysses, had fastened himself to the mast, was struck dead by a flash of lightning. The humane Petrarch dropped a tear on his disaster, but he was most anxious to learn whether some copy of Euripides or Sophocles might not be saved from the hands of the mariners. But the faint rudiments of Greek learning, which Petrarch had encouraged and Boccaccio had planted, soon withered and expired. The succeeding generation was content for a while with the improvement of Latin eloquence. Nor was it before the end of the fourteenth century that a new and perpetual flame was rekindled in Italy. Previous to his own journey the Emperor Manuel dispatched his envoys and orators to implore the compassion of the Western princes. Of these envoys, the most conspicuous, or the most learned, was Manuel Chrysoloris, of noble birth, whose Roman ancestors are supposed to have migrated with the great Constantine. After visiting the courts of France and England, where he obtained some contributions and more promises, the envoy was invited to assume the office of a professor, and Florence had again the honour of this second invitation. By his knowledge, not only of the Greek, but of the Latin tongue, Chrysoloris deserved the stipend, and surpassed the expectation of the Republic. His school was frequented by a crowd of disciples of every rank and age, and one of these, in a general history, has described his motives and his success. At that time, says Leonard Ariton, I was a student of the civil law, but my soul was inflamed with the love of letters, and I bestowed some application on the sciences of logic and rhetoric. On the arrival of Manuel, I hesitated whether I should desert my legal studies, or relinquish this golden opportunity, and thus, in the ardour of youth, I communed with my own mind. Wilt thou be wanting to thyself and thy fortune? Wilt thou refuse to be introduced to a familiar converse with Homer, Plato, and Demosthenes, with those poets, philosophers, and orators, of whom such wonders are related, and who are celebrated by every age as the great masters of human science? Of professors and scholars in civil law, a sufficient supply will always be found in our universities, but a teacher, and such a teacher, of the Greek language, if he once be suffered to escape, may never afterwards be retrieved. Convinced by these reasons, I gave myself to Chrysoloris, and so strong was my passion, that the lessons which I had imbibed in the day were the constant object of my nightly dreams. At the same time and place, the Latin classics were explained by John of Ravenna, the domestic pupil of Petrarch. The Italians, who illustrated their age and country, were formed in this double school, and Florence became the fruitful seminary of Greek and Roman erudition. The presence of the emperor recalled Chrysoloris from the college to the court, but he afterwards taught at Pavia and Rome with equal industry and applause. The remainder of his life, about fifteen years, was divided between Italy and Constantinople, between embassies and lessons. In the noble office of enlightening a foreign nation, the grammarian was not unmindful of a more sacred duty to his prince and country, 
and Emmanuel Chrysoloris died at Constance on a public mission from the emperor to the council. After his example, the restoration of the Greek letters in Italy was prosecuted by a series of immigrants, who were destitute of fortune and endowed with learning, or at least with language. From the terror or oppression of the Turkish arms, the natives of Thessalonica and Constantinople escaped to a land of freedom, curiosity, and wealth. The Synod introduced into Florence the lights of the Greek Church, and the oracles of the Platonic philosophy, and the fugitives who adhered to the Union had the double merit of renouncing their country, not only for the Christian but for the Catholic cause. A patriot who sacrifices his party and conscience to the allurements of favor may be possessed, however, of the private and social virtues. He no longer hears the reproachful epithets of slave and apostate, and the consideration which he acquires among his new associates will restore in his own eyes the dignity of his character. The prudent conformity of Bessarion was rewarded with the Roman purple. He fixed his residence in Italy, and the Greek cardinal, the titular patriarch of Constantinople, was respected as the chief and protector of his nation. His abilities were exercised in the legations of Bologna, Venice, Germany, and France, and his election to the chair of St. Peter floated for a moment on the uncertain breath of a conclave. His ecclesiastical honors diffused a splendor and preeminence over his literary merit and service. His palace was a school, as often as the cardinal visited the Vatican, he was attended by a learned train of both nations, of men applauded by themselves and the public, and whose writings, now overspread with dust, were popular and useful in their own times. I shall not attempt to enumerate the restorers of Grecian literature in the fifteenth century, and it may be sufficient to mention with gratitude the names of Theodore Gaza, of George of Trebizond, of John Agropolis, and Demetrius Chalcocondyles, who taught their native language in the schools of Florence and Rome. Their labors were not inferior to those of Bessarion, whose purple they revered, and whose fortune was the secret object of their envy. But the lives of these grammarians were humble and obscure. They had declined the lucrative paths of the church, their dress and manners secluded them from the commerce of the world, and since they were confined to the merit, they might be content with the rewards of learning. From this character, Janus Lascaris will deserve an exception. His eloquence, politeness, and imperial descent recommended him to the French monarch, and in the same cities he was alternately employed to teach and to negotiate. Duty and interest prompted them to cultivate the study of the Latin language, and the most successful attained the faculty of writing and speaking with fluency and elegance in a foreign idiom. But they ever retained the inveterate vanity of their country. Their praise, or at least their esteem, was reserved for the national writers, to whom they owed their fame and subsistence, and they sometimes betrayed their contempt in licentious criticism or satire on Virgil's poetry and the oratory of Tully. The superiority of these masters arose from the familiar use of a living language, and their first disciples were incapable of discerning how far they had degenerated from the knowledge and even the practice of their ancestors. A vicious pronunciation, which they introduced, was banished from the schools by the reason of the succeeding age. Of the power of the Greek accents they were ignorant, and those musical notes, which from an Attic tongue and to an Attic ear must have been the secret soul of harmony, were to their eyes, as to our own, no more than minute and unmeaning marks, in prose superfluous and troublesome in verse. The art of grammar they truly possessed, 
the valuable fragments of Apollonius and Herodian were transfused onto their lessons, and their treatises of syntax and etymology, though devoid of philosophic spirit, are still useful to the Greek student. In the shipwreck of the Byzantine libraries, each fugitive seized a fragment of treasure, a copy of some author, who without his industry might have perished. The transcripts were multiplied by an assiduous, and sometimes an elegant pen, and the text was corrected and explained by their own comments, or those of the elder scholiasts. The sense, though not the spirit, of the Greek classics was interpreted to the Latin world. The beauties of style evaporate in aversion, but the judgment of Theodore Gaza selected the more solid works of Aristotle and Theophrastus, and their natural histories of animals and plants opened a rich fund of genuine and experimental science. Yet the fleeting shadows of metaphysics were pursued with more curiosity and ardor. After a long oblivion, Plato was revived in Italy by a venerable Greek, who taught in the house of Cosmo of Medicis. While the Senate of Florence was involved in theological debate, some beneficial consequences might flow from the study of his elegant philosophy. His style is the purest standard of the Attic dialect, and his sublime thoughts are sometimes adapted to familiar conversation, and sometimes adorned with the richest colors of poetry and eloquence. The dialogues of Plato are a dramatic picture of the life and death of a sage, and as often as he descends from the clouds, his moral system inculcates the love of truth, of our country, and of mankind. The precept and example of Socrates recommended a modest doubt and liberal inquiry, and if the Platonists, with blind devotion, adored the visions and errors of their divine master, their enthusiasm might correct the dry, dogmatic method of the peripatetic school. So equal, yet so opposite, are the merits of Plato and Aristotle, that they may be balanced in endless controversy, but some spark of freedom may be produced by the collision of adverse servitude. The modern Greeks were divided between the two sects. With more fury than skill they fought under the banner of their leaders, and the field of battle was removed in their flight from Constantinople to Rome. But this philosophical debate soon degenerated into an angry and personal quarrel of grammarians, and Bessarion, though an advocate for Plato, protected the national honor by interposing the advice and authority of a mediator. In the gardens of the Medici, the academical doctrine was enjoyed by the polite and learned, but their philosophic society was quickly dissolved, and if the writings of the Attic sage were perused in the closet, the more powerful Stagorite continued to reign, the oracle of the church and school. I have fairly represented the literary merits of the Greeks, yet it must be confessed that they were seconded and surpassed by the ardor of the Latins. Italy was divided into many independent states, and at that time it was the ambition of princes and republics to vie with each other in the encouragement and reward of literature. The fame of Nicholas V has not been adequate to his merits. From a plebeian origin he raised himself by his virtue and learning. The character of the man prevailed over the interest of the Pope, and he sharpened those weapons which were soon pointed against the Roman Church. He had been the friend of the most eminent scholars of the age. He became their patron, and such was the humility of his manners, that the change was scarcely discernible either to them or to himself. If he pressed the acceptance of a liberal gift, it was not as the measure of desert, but as the proof of benevolence, and when modest merit declined his bounty, accept it, he would say, with a consciousness of his own worth, you will not always have a Nicholas among you. The influence of the Holy See pervaded Christendom, and he exerted that influence in the search, 
not of benefices, but of books. From the ruins of the Byzantine libraries, from the darkest monasteries of Germany and Britain, he collected the dusty manuscripts of the writers of antiquity, and wherever the original could not be removed, a faithful copy was transcribed and transmitted for his use. The Vatican, the old repository for bulls and legends, for superstition and forgery, was daily replenished with more precious furniture, and such was the industry of Nicholas, that in a reign of eight years he formed a library of five thousand volumes. To his munificence the Latin world was indebted for the versions of Xenophon, Diodorus, Polybius, Thucydides, Herodotus, and Appian, of Strabo's geography, of the Iliad, of the most valuable works of Plato and Aristotle, of Ptolemy and Theophrastus, and of the fathers of the Greek church. The example of the Roman pontiff was preceded or imitated by a Florentine merchant, who governed the republic without arms and without a title. Cosimo of Medicis was the father of a line of princes, whose name and age are almost synonymous with the restoration of learning. His credit was ennobled into fame, his riches were dedicated to the service of mankind, he corresponded at once with Cairo and London, and a cargo of Indian spices and Greek books was often imported in the same vessel. The genius and education of his grandson Lorenzo rendered him not only a patron, but a judge and candidate in the literary race. In his palace, distress was entitled to relief, and merit to reward. His leisure hours were delightfully spent in the Platonic Academy. He encouraged the emulation of Demetrius Calcocondales, and Angelo Politician, and his active missionary, Janus Lascaris, returned from the east with a treasure of two hundred manuscripts, fourscore of which were as yet unknown in the libraries of Europe. The rest of Italy was animated by a similar spirit, and the progress of the nation repaid the liberality of their princes. The Latins held the exclusive property of their own literature, and these disciples of Greece were soon capable of transmitting and improving the lessons which they had imbibed. After a short succession of foreign teachers, the tide of emigration subsided, but the language of Constantinople was spread beyond the Alps and the natives of France, Germany, and England, imparted to their country the sacred fire which they had kindled in the schools of Florence and Rome. In the productions of the mind, as in those of the soil, the gifts of nature are excelled by industry and skill. The Greek authors, forgotten on the banks of the Elysius, have been illustrated on those of the Elba and the Thames, and Viserion or Gaza might have envied the superior science of the barbarians, the accuracy of Budaeus, the taste of Erasmus, the copiousness of Stevens, the erudition of Scaliger, the discernment of Resca or of Bentley. On the side of the Latins, the discovery of printing was a casual advantage, but this useful art has been applied by Aldus and his innumerable successors to perpetuate and multiply the works of antiquity. A single manuscript imported from Greece is revived in ten thousand copies, and each copy is fairer than the original. In this form, Homer and Plato would peruse with more satisfaction their own writings, and their scholiasts must resign the prize to the labors of our Western editors. Before the revival of classic literature, the barbarians in Europe were immersed in ignorance, and their vulgar tongues were marked with the rudeness and poverty of their manners. The students of the more perfect idioms of Rome and Greece were introduced to a new world of light and science, to the society of the free and polished nations of antiquity, and to a familiar converse with those immortal men who spoke the sublime language of eloquence and reason. Such an intercourse must tend to refine the taste, 
and to elevate the genius, of the moderns, and yet from the first experiments, it might appear that the study of the ancients had given fetters, rather than wings, to the human mind. However laudable, the spirit of imitation is of a servile caste, and the first disciples of the Greeks and Romans were a colony of strangers in the midst of their age and country. The minute and laborious diligence which explored the antiquities of remote times might have improved or adorned the present state of society. The critic and metaphysician were the slaves of Aristotle. The poets, historians, and orators were proud to repeat the thoughts and words of the Augustan age. The works of nature were observed with the eyes of Pliny and Theophrastus, and some pagan votaries professed a secret devotion to the gods of Homer and Plato. The Italians were oppressed by the strength and number of their ancient auxiliaries. The century after the deaths of Petrarch and Boccace was filled with a crowd of Latin imitators, who decently repose on our shelves, but in that era of learning it will not be easy to discern a real discovery of science, a work of invention or eloquence, in the popular language of the country. But as soon as it had been deeply saturated with the celestial dew, the soil was quickened into vegetation and life, the modern idioms were refined, the classics of Athens and Rome inspired a pure taste and a generous emulation, and in Italy, as afterwards in France and England, the pleasing reign of poetry and fiction was succeeded by the light of speculative and experimental philosophy. Genius may anticipate the season of maturity, but in the education of a people, as in that of an individual, memory must be exercised before the powers of reason and fancy can be expanded, nor may the artist hope to equal or surpass, till he has learned to imitate, the works of his predecessors. End of chapter 66